You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy, with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Watt Watchers, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use, and SolarAy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and thanks for joining our weekly podcast. Uh, this is Giles Parkinson, the editor of Renew Economy, joined as usual by David Leach from ITK. David, how are you? I'm very well, thanks Giles, and thanks to listeners. No special guest this week, it's just got uh, you and me working, working out what's going on. Yeah, look, the reason for that is that we've both been travelling, but um, you've been the one on the road, on duty, on assignment as it were, up in the Hunter Valley, visiting the Liddell coal generator, and also the Tomago, or the... Tom ago, um, smelter. I have indeed, and uh, I, I've probably been in about a thousand site visits in my career. Not not just to utilities and power plants, although I have seen the Northern Power Station, which was arguably predates Captain Cook, um, <laughs> and, and and also the uh, one of the older ones in Collinsville Power Station. Uh, but I have to say, uh, Liddell rates right up there with the worst of them in terms of its current state. Look, it certainly sounds like a tour of the golden oldies, Northern um, Brown Coal Generator, Collinsville and Liddell. Look, the other two are closed and Liddell's supposed to be closing in 2022. Um, from your visit today, can you think of any reason why it shouldn't close? Uh, no, I can't. But I was just going to say that the amusing thing is this is the first time in all those thousand visits and particularly with the Northern Collinsville where they were try- always trying to tell me how good they were. Uh, this is the first time I've ever consciously seen a company get out there with a set agenda of explaining how bad things were. <laughs> Uh, and, and they succeeded. I don't think anyone came away with the impression this was a great plant, you know. And it's got closure costs. I mean, Liddell and uh, Nextdoor uh, 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 have got a combined closure liability of about $900 million. And I think uh, actually a bigger part of that might be at Liddell, which is going to be accelerated by the closure. So, I mean, AGL is going to be incurring costs by closing down Liddell is what I'm trying to say. So I don't think they'd be doing it if they could, thought they could make a lot of money out of it. So what did they tell you today then? Um, did they just sort of tell you that basically, well, it sounds from what I saw on the TV images that they sound like the it, it, it's in a state, it's not really working very well, it's costing a lot of money to maintain and they really can't see any point in going on. Well, they said that they'd spent about $130 million of CapEx running it so far and that it was running at a lot less than its rated capacity. Both of those things we already knew, but they were reinforced by the visuals. They said it would cost another $130 million or so to keep it going to 2022 in terms of CapEx. Uh, and then they said, and this was a real shocker, uh, that they'd have to spend about $950 million, according to a study that was done uh, by Worley Parsons for the New South Wales government, to keep it going for another 10 years beyond 2022 to 2032. And I don't think anyone in their right mind would say that spending that $900 million was a good use of anyone's money. Now, the media were on board there. They were also travelling. What did you get the impression from how they absorbed the story? Well, they asked a lot of questions, uh, and I thought they were uh, interested to see inside. Uh, and uh, they're, in some ways, more interested in the in the in, in the political questions. Whereas I'm trying to move beyond the politics. It's very difficult to do, Giles, and we won't succeed. But I think, and the visit. But we to can Tomago, try. <laughs> the, the visit to Tomago reinforced the fact, and we've already seen 15 percent of the um, aluminium smelter at Gladstone close this year because the power price was too high. We've seen the Point Henry smelter in Victoria close because it was inefficient and the power price was going to go up in Victoria. 
We've seen the Curry Curry smelter close in New South Wales a few years ago, even when power prices were low. Tomago has a great uh, power price deal uh, until 2028, but even so, it's not as good a deal as they had when the New South Wales government owned it. I think the power price is about $45 or something. Mm. And so their profits are actually going to go down even at that power price. Now, if you look at the futures price of $100 or $70 out in 2020, that's another smelter. 10% of New South Wales' electricity consumption, 950 megawatts of demand uh, that's going to go away. If, 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 the, if policy and the industry don't work pretty darn hard to get a more affordable, dispatchable uh, generation going. So then you so look just, at the possibility... Sorry, go on. No, no, I was just going to just sort of interrupt. But um, no, I was just wondering, because with, with the guy that sort of... Um, I spoke, presumably you spoke to uh, Mike Howell, is it, who's the, um, the head of Tomoko Smelter. What exactly is he hoping for? Because he hadn't spoken incredibly favourably about renewables. Does he accept that a combination of renewables and other new dispatchable power can be more reliable and possibly cheaper than what he's got now? Look, I think... Matt, from, from the time, the few hours I spent there, is mainly interested in, uh, his, he would, has a mining background, and his interest is in manufacturing in Australia and providing manufacturing jobs, and he believes quite correctly that aluminium has to be produced somewhere. It's a vital commodity that, that's used, you know, in buildings and cars. Someone's going to be making aluminium. He doesn't probably see why it should be any cheaper to make aluminium in China, which is where most of it is being made today, than in uh, uh, than, than, than at Tomago, just north of Newcastle. Mm. So, so he's interested to learn about the electricity industry. I, I think he, like a lot of other people, want answers. They, I mean, they'll play politics and jump on the ideology, but in the end, they're looking for the right deal. Tell me, going back to Liddell, what did AGL give you the impression about what they were thinking that could replace Liddell now? Um, are they still talking about solar and wind and hydro and storage or gas plants? What's, um, what do they suggest was on the agenda? They weren't really that firm about that, but they did point out that uh, they thought that renewables firmed up. I mean, they talked, as, as everyone is talking today, about the flexibility that's needed in supply. They see a future where there's a lot of renewables and we already know that demand is quite volatile in Australia and likely to remain so. So it's, it varies over the day by about, I don't know, 20% demand. And they see that the, uh, uh, the balancing load will increase because wind and, and PV will in, essentially increase the volatility of the balancing load. And so the question is, historically actually, despite what people will tell you, coal has done quite a good job of managing daily variability in demand. I mean, the um, Araring power station in New South Wales, each of its units can go up and down as near as I can work out by about 100 megawatts in an hour. That's not fantastic, but it's a lot better than nothing. And so, as I say, historically, despite being largely coal and despite the fact that demand has been quite volatile, we've actually managed fairly well. But the problem, the coal stations are getting older and less flexible. And they're all, and there's, only, there's so few of them. I mean, you know, the big worry about the summer in Victoria, what have we got? We've got Loyang A, we've got Loyang B, uh, and we've got your lawn. That's it, you know? Uh, well, a couple of those units um, fall over in the middle of the summer heat, and, and, they're, and they're quite likely to. Um, um, even even Aima was sort of saying that, that um, then um, it could all end in tears. 
It, it will end in tears. And so this is the other point I, I should mention that about the Tomago smelter. It absolutely, and we've already seen this at Portland smelter, which was kept open with a subsidy. Well, and, but, but it actually, once the electricity supply goes off at Tomago for three hours, it will take them a year and a lot of money to restart it because the, the electrolyte th things all solidify and won't conduct electricity anymore. And so you've basically got to throw them all away. And, and Look, I understand, I understand that. And, that, and that's clearly his. I mean, and clearly they're absolutely furious about having that load shedding that occurred to them in February. But let's, um, let's actually think about what caused that load shedding, particularly the, I think it was the second one, was the fact that Liddell was operating at less than half the capacity and the two big gas plants failed to deliver when, when asked. Well, and, and I mean, look, I don't want to get into a fight between AGL and, and Tomago. That's not the point here. I'm, as I said, more interested not in fights. I'm more interested in everyone working together to find the right answer. And you asked before, Giles, about what did Tim Nelson, hint, who's AGL's uh, economist, hint at, and he hinted at uh, open cycle gas, essentially. Now, the difficulty with doing that at Liddell itself is, of course, there's no gas pipeline. You'd have to build one from Newcastle, but it's much cheaper to build gas pipelines than it is to build electricity transmission lines, as a general statement. Mm, interesting. Well, look, um, geez, I wonder what the way forward is from here, because the um, the government seems absolutely set on Liddell. I, I, I presume that over time they're going to gradually absorb the fact that it can't be... Um, AGL got no interest in keeping it open. Um, apparently, Trevor St. Baker over at Delta Energy has got no interest in um, paying whatever well, it's going to I don't know about that. I mean, that's the way that's been reported. But when I read about that, what actually was said is he said that uh, AGL has said it's not for sale. I just don't see a really good case on any language. And, uh, and in fact, uh, I don't believe Malcolm... Uh, Turnbull has explained why Liddell needs to stay open, but I want to point to the wider issues in New South Wales, which, as I said in one of my uh, notes that you published at Renew Economy this week, uh, talks about the thermal coal situation. And the fact is that uh, originally all this coal for these power stations, including particularly uh, a Raring power station, uh, the largest single generator, uh, was going to come from the Kabora coal development, which has now been abandoned. And so we really don't have a ready-made uh, coal source. And we saw um, a court case this week or last week, I forget, which could potentially affect the Mount Piper power station in west of New South Wales. And because it's west of Newcastle, it has a more difficult rail access to coal than, than, than the ones that are more east. I mean, I don't want to get too bogged down in the technical details, but the point is if you're paying the export parity price for coal, and you want to run coal at the same quality because we've been running much higher ash, dirtier coal than South Koreans will take, uh, <laughs> then it's going to be costing you 60 or $70, I think, just for the coal price of electricity. Uh, which, which, which basically tells us that, you know, over time, because of all these changes in the coal market and, and, and whatever it is, that existing coal-fired power stations are probably not going to be delivering much cheaper electricity than renewables and, um, and other forms of generation. Well, that's it. So the, the real question is how to build a dispatchable generation system at an affordable price, right? If we just focused at that also has a, 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 can deliver Australia's COP 2021 20, emissions, but, but it's a, and a lot more than that. 
And this is the point. Turnbull himself reaffirmed this week that, that we're planning to keep to those uh, agreed targets, but he, but he refuses to announce any policy about how we're actually going to do it, and time is relatively short. Well, there's actually a smorgasbord of reports that he could actually sort of taste from. I mean, there's the CSIRO and the ENA reports, which talked about the transition that was issued last year. Transgrid's come up with a few sort of um, not-so-detailed scenarios, but basically talking about this decarbonisation can happen at an affordable price and can be done. We've had the Finkel review. We've had the AEMO reports, which basically sets its own blueprint, building on Finkel, about how you can actually think about dispatchable um, energy in a different way than we thought in the past. So there seems to be no shortage no. of possibilities. And, and the technology has kept advancing. So, you know, I, I will just talk about politics for 30 seconds. Turnbull wanted to be prime minister since he was at school and he's achieved his ambitions. And everyone knows, including him, that he's a smart guy. Uh, uh, <laughs> and, and, and but what is the point of being prime minister if you don't leave your mark on the office? If you don't come up with some policies that people are going to remember when you're gone? You know, uh, I mean. Well, I, look, I think that's exactly right. And look, I had this sort of rather sort of hopeful dream that maybe once he'd served his second anniversary, once he'd sort of, um, you know, he, he, he had served a couple of days longer than Tony Abbott, maybe then that would be the prompt for him to think about his legacy and exactly those sort of decisions. You know, what's he going to be remembered for, apart from just repeating the same policies that preceded him? So that's right, Giles. And now getting back to it, dispatchable renewables... I think myself, so the point, next point to understand, which we all do, is that the cost of building wind and solar is coming down. Uh, there are a series of reports showing from the USA that the cost of utility scale solar has fallen 30% in one year. Uh, um, uh, and we're getting, as well as that, a lot more understanding about how renewables do impact profits for and, and overall costs in the system. And what we are seeing is that, yes, renewables are cheaper, uh, have a lower cost of electricity than, than certainly gas and probably than coal, but they do have negative impacts on the profits of coal and gas generators. And when you take those things out of the system, it actually makes the, in, in a big rush in Australia, it actually makes the price of electricity go up. And it does increase the need for and the value of other firming resources. So the debate is a bit more nuanced. Uh, and I know you want to talk a little bit about the REC stuff. But I think the real question at the moment is how to supply firming generation and whether it's best done in the short, in the long run. And uh, I think it will be done with pumped hydro and with concentrating solar and with batteries, right? And, well, I agree with that. Those three have to be the mix. But I also think it's possible to give a little bit on the other side and, and put in some gas uh, in, in the short run uh, because it's a known off-the-shelf technology uh, that you actually can, could do with a, with, with, with a bit of political and, and financial will and which I think the electricity generators themselves would go at. And I think it would suit AGL, which wants to do its crib point LNG import terminal to build some gas generation in New South Wales, recapture some gas market share overall in the gas supply market, and that that could be used to firm up a lot more renewables. Uh, and, and as you know, we published a note showing that I think you could get a price of about $90 and only have overall carbon emissions of 0.1 tonne per, per overall megawatt hour delivered, which I think is a, a pretty big improvement overall. Yes, it's using gas uh, and it's not uh, if I, what I might call totally ideologically pure, 
But, I mean, I think there has to be a bit of compromise all around the place at the moment. Well, that's right. Look, and I, and I think most of the 100% renewable scenarios, which is probably what you're sort of alluding to, do actually include a fair amount of gas generation in the scenarios. And what they're sort of suggesting is that at that last lunge towards 100% renewables, then it might become a biogas or some or some sort of other decarbonised gas, whether it's you know possibly hydrogen or ammonia um, generated from excess renewables or, or, or some sort of um, biofuel gas. Who's to know? Because that's probably 20 or 30 years down the track. But certainly, look, I'm hearing you on, on what you're saying on that. And um, I'm certainly excited by the prospects. If we can get over this mental blockage about keeping these coal baseload generators open longer than they need be and, um, and, 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 and put the right signals for the battery storage, for the pumped hydro, for the solar thermal, whatever that mix is actually going to be, we're going to need certain different types of storage for different types of um, uses within the energy market, um, then we can get on with it. So we have to convince uh, people, first of all, and we have to convince the consumers. We're never going to convince the diehards, but we have to convince the consumers, the people like the Tomagos, that there is a, a largely renewable, dispatchable generation solution. But then you come down to cost and price. And I think to go out there and, and tell anyone, from Malcolm Turnbull to Bill Shorten, for anyone to go out there and say that the generation price of dispatchable electricity is going to fall a lot over the next few years. I, th I think that's becoming, without a fall in the gas or coal price, it's becoming increasingly unlikely because even though the, the wind and the PV prices are coming down and down and down, and now we're hearing about solar PPA prices of under $70, I mean, which is just incredible when you, when you think about a couple of years ago, and wind prices down at 55, and these are best in breed, but uh, as the scale of the development goes up, it will give another boost to taking costs in Australia down. But you're still going to have to firm it up, is what I'm trying to say. And it's, okay, it's... But, but I guess the message that you're saying there is, okay, you're not going to get a big reduction in the cost of wholesale electricity from renewables, but certainly you're not going to get any big reduction in the wholesale cost of electricity if you keep on with the coal and the gas plants. Well, that's, and I guess that's what... what I am saying. Exactly. That's exactly it. And, and one of the things, despite what we see in the Murdoch media, and I might use this as an opportunity um, pretty soon to get into um, the one thing I do want to talk about today, or another thing I wanted to talk about today, um, was that if you do use renewables, you're not going to cause a significant increase in the wholesale price of electricity. It's probably going to re remain roughly around where it has been. Well, I, I think that's right. And the question, I think that's roughly right. So that the cost of the renewables themselves will continue to fall. But we will have increasing firming up costs that will sort of counterbalance that. Uh, and, and, and we're likely, if we're not careful, to have these big reductions in thermal supply. So, that, that's the, we, so we can have dispatchable, renewable electricity at a price that's roughly comparable to what to what the market price is today. That's what Absolutely. I Absolutely. And let's not forget all those other things on the demand side, like demand management yep. and energy efficiency, which can actually save it. And, and, and I'm putting that in now, otherwise we're going to have Tim Forsey and all the other people on our, on our backs. Sort of no, I quite, I quite agree with you, Giles. I think every, all of us are looking forward to seeing just what uh, demand management can do now that the uh, Energy Security Board has got behind it. And I'm pretty sure uh, everyone's behind doing better in demand management because, as Chloe Munro said last week, we've been very slow off the off the cab there. Now, let me have Sorry. my little rant against the uh, Murdoch media. Um, in the Australian Today, its front page lead was a wonderfully juicy story about the Maurice Solar Farm, a Saudi billionaire, his playboy son, the singer Rihanna, and basically how the Saudi billionaire was making off not just with Rihanna, but $300 million of our, of our savings, because um, that's what the 
the payment was going to be in renewable energy from renewable energy certificates to the Moree solar farm. Of course, apart from the link to Rihanna, the rest of it was absolute bunkum. Um, he may well have Rihanna, but he doesn't have our money because they've actually signed a power purchase agreement like so many other wind and solar contracts, like the one you mentioned in, in Victoria Stockyard Hill, uh, like the Silverton Wind Farm near Broken Hill. They're basically signing uh, PPAs where they're basically giving away the LGCs for free. And the significance of this is, basically, that's good news for those energy retailers which are signing those contracts, or in fact these other energy consumers like Telstra and Sun Metals that are signing these contracts, they're getting electricity um, for lower cost than they're probably paying on the wholesale price. No one is actually paying for the LGCs because they're just being used to acquit, acquit whatever obligation people have. That's actually a really good news story for the consumers and the shareholders and certainly gives the taxpayers and the other consumers nothing to complain about. Well, I don't agree with all of that, Giles. Uh, I mean, I think uh, the, the Saudi prince, I don't know how he's got... Re I thought Rihanna was hanging out with Julia Gillard last I heard, but I mean, I might have missed that part of the story. <laughs> She's moved on. Uh, <laughs> the Saudi prince has probably got more money, but... And, <laughs> the point about it is that we've had plenty of complaints. There's plenty wrong with the uh, LRET scheme, with the RET scheme uh, that we've been through before, and that is that it, the price volatility basically increases the cost of capital. The part where I don't uh, agree with you uh, is that the retailers aren't exploiting this because they are t charging effectively the, mar the market price for the certificates in what they so they are passing the eighty dollars on to consumers. Oh no, no, I'm going to agree with you on that one, and that's actually going to be a follow-up story. Absolutely. No, no, no. They are passing on to the consumers and they shouldn't be. What I wanted to point out was it's not the developers and the international companies who are building the wind and solar farms who are making off with the renewable energy certificates. No, that, that part I agree with. But So the retailers have really gained the situation thoroughly. They wanted to make money out of their banker certificates that they had built or purchased at high prices. And you have to remember the REC price was down in $40 a while ago and they were all losing money on their certificate books. And so they were quite happy to, to have the price go up a lot, safe in the knowledge that they can pass it on to consumers. They don't care about the large customers. I think this is the thing where the big energy users have to get really unhappy with their retailers for not finding better answers for them a lot sooner. As much as we blame Tony Abbott uh, and his problems with the LRET target, and as much as generators have sort the, the big retailers have kind of swung behind the idea of, of getting, they want to build, they really haven't been in a big hurry. AGL, where you could complain, is they could have built far more renewables in New South Wales uh, and got ready for this Liddell closure. Uh, if they'd wanted to a heck of a lot earlier. I mean, they're only now starting to talk about it under a huge amount of pressure. And, and, and we are. And that's because they're making so much money out of um, the coal they are burning. And, and the renewable certificates. They, they are still, there is still far too much of an oligopoly of a market. And if I was someone like uh, a big electricity consumer, what I'd be going out there is making, and a really, really big one, I'd be going out there inviting bids for supply. Uh, and just see, I mean, there are companies like Alinta, I know, that would die to get into the New South Wales, would love the opportunity to build a new, you know, one gigawatt system if, if, if they were given the right opportunity and put some yeah. more competition into the market. Well, that's, that's probably a good idea too. Um, yeah, well, people can actually look to see how much they're being charged by their retailers when they get their bills in the next few weeks. Um, there is a specific price of the uh, the green energy price, 
and it'll be fascinating to see how much they are charging because even though the market price for LGCs is very high, that actually only represents a very small part of the market for um, energy retailers that haven't met their obligations. So it's about 5% of the customer bills, I think, what we, what we find, or 6%. It will, will go up a little bit, but uh, and it's a slightly bigger component for the um, non for, for, for people that are bigger than households that still haven't, have, have to pay the liability. But it's not the major cause of the increase in electricity prices directly, but it is indirectly, because when, when you force Hazelwood out of the market, uh, or you force uh, um, Northern Power Station out of the market because of all the wind, then you do make the electricity price go up. And it is the renewables that have done that, but not through the component that shows up on your bill. On it's the other hand, if more renewables had been built, then there'd be more competition in the market, therefore the prices wouldn't have gone up higher. Correct. So we need more renewables is the answer, backed up by more firming capacity. Everyone knows that. It's as clear, it's as plain as the nose it's on the end of my face, and that's pretty plain these days. <laughs> and, 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 you know, let's get on with it. I don't know how many times we've got to say that. Absolutely. Look, um, let's start winding this down because we've been going a fair while now. Um, just a couple of other little points from the last week. Um, there's been another couple of little, a few little solar farms coming through. Most notably, a big one got council approval in West in Queensland. Sorry, the BLB Solar Farm. Um, the interesting aspect of that is that it's from APA, which is hitherto a gas pipeline company. Um, they did win a um, an arena tender to build a solar farm in WA, but they're obviously looking for bigger and better projects in Queensland. Look, if APA can earn their right return on capital and someone off it, they, they could put two or three billion dollars into these projects and, and wouldn't blink an eyelid. They'd love to do it if they were offered enough projects that offered them the right returns. Well, that's an exciting prospect as well. Look, anything else on your agenda in the um, in the next week or so? Uh, there's the, always another conference coming up in the next couple of weeks uh, or whatever, but at the moment I'm just going to knuckle down and uh, keep thinking, I think, Giles. Keep thinking, keep thinking. And I hope our listeners keep on listening. Um, look, it's been um, great to catch up with you and um, slightly different um, agenda this week. Um, fantastic having you up on the road and sort of visiting places like Tomago and Liddell. And um, we'll see if we can get an interesting guest for next week. Absolutely. Maybe we can talk about a little bit more about climate change. There's been a few studies on that uh, uh, coming out recently. Indeed, there has. That's probably a really good idea. Okay, David, thanks very much, man. Cheers, Giles. And thanks to our listeners. And once again, um, please give us your feedback. Please give us any suggestions of people to talk to, any topics to discuss. Please give your opinion on the iTunes about whether you think it's a good thing or not. Your recommendation does help us become heard by more people. And once again, thanks for listening and thanks to our sponsors. Thank you very much. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Watt Watchers makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs, accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit whatwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by SolarRay Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.